I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Neelam Ram. Neelam is a professor of psychology and communication at Stanford University, where he helps direct the Human Screenome Project. And he is one of the pioneers of screenomics research, which we're going to be talking about today. Neelam, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on. So, Neelam, I know you've had a very interdisciplinary training. So, um, why don't we start off? I know you started off your undergrad in economics, so we could we could kind of tell the story from there of how your career progressed. Yeah, sure. So, I did my uh, degree in economics. Uh, because I really wanted to work on Wall Street. I thought that was exciting and you could make a lot of money and live in New York City. Uh-huh. Uh, so I sort of took that route, uh, was lucky enough to get a job on uh, Wall Street working for a bank. I was trading foreign exchange derivatives, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of volatility in foreign exchange prices and how it is that they fluctuate over time, whether there were going to be periods of stability where not too much was happening in the world and other times when like a war would break out and then you get lots of volatility all of a sudden. So we were trying to mm-hmm. understand and make money off of predicting when those changes in volatility were going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for about six years. I worked on a the desk there yeah. and uh, then I decided to go back to school and I went back to school. Uh, well, first I went mountain biking for a month uh-huh. <laughs> and then cool. I went back to school and uh, ended up doing a master's degree in kinesiology mm-hmm. and specifically sports psychology. So when I was working on the training desk, I got interested in motivation and how is it that one constructs high-performance teams. So decided to study that. And so I worked on that for a while. And eventually I found I really enjoyed my stats classes yeah. and the return to uh, numbers, which I had looked at in the market. And so mm-hmm. I moved over and got a PhD in quantitative psychology at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. There I worked with uh, John Nesserode and Jack McArdle, uh, among others who were specializing in study of change and over both long time scales and short time scales. And so I learned a lot there about how to analyze longitudinal data and forwarding some new methods for how it is that we would approach those kinds of data in order to study behavioral change. So the time series component from the market huh. has stayed consistent uh, all the way through. Yeah, and, it's, it's uh, cool how much overlap there is between trying to predict, you know, market behavior and human behavior. I guess you could make an argument that markets are just like large collections of humans. So in, in that sense, you have the natural connection there. Yeah, yes. And, we, and when I was in the market, our, our sort of trading approach was a social psychological approach of what is the group think look like and how is that group think going to evolve over time. And that was the way in which we tried to anticipate what the different sectors that were involved in the market were going to do at different times. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that's like more of a large scale collective social psychology. And then gradually your focus narrowed down to individuals. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. I was always interested in uh, from the psychological side as the study of individuals in contrast mm-hmm. to the sociological side as the study of collectives of people. And mm-hmm. uh, my training was in a psychology department. So I got I spent a lot of time thinking about individual function and particularly even within individual function and how uh, changes were occurring within person. Uh-huh. So within person is in like the same person might behave differently one day to the next or even in the same day, like morning versus nighttime, 
or when they're hungry, if they're grumpy or not, things like that. <laughs> yes, all of those uh, things are occurring at very different timescales. Uh, over the course of the lifespan, we have different motivations uh, in our in, at the older ages than we do at younger ages. And then also at these fast timescales, like hours of the day, uh, whether I slept or didn't sleep the night before, those mm -hmm. fast timescales also. So during your grad school training, were you already looking at like mobile sensing data or were you more focused on typical behavioral measures using longitudinal research? Uh, I started off uh, looking at longitudinal panel studies, which were surveys and sometimes assessments, cognitive assessments and physical assessments that were taken every year or two years. And that was mostly among uh, aging populations. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the projects, one of the first I guess it wasn't some of the first stuff, but sort of in the middle, I got uh, my advisor got some data, which was people who had been measured every week for multiple weeks for 36 uh, weeks uh, over every week for 36 weeks. And that was sort of my introduction into the time series ish type world and whether we could use uh, whether we could develop methods in order to be able to look at within person changes that were occurring on these mm -hmm. relatively fast time scales. Uh -huh. And then we also had daily, daily data and started working with daily data. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got to uh, Penn State and started conducting my own studies, experience sampling was starting to get uh, easier and more possible because smartphones had just come out. And so uh -huh. uh, us being able to deliver uh, questionnaires multiple times a day, those devices really accelerated the right. ability to be able to obtain those kinds of data. Right, yeah, so I guess looking at smartphone data and within person rapid changes it, it was a natural next step to focus on development as opposed to these aging populations. Yeah, and I'm not sure totally why, because I, I started crawling down the lifespan. Uh -huh. uh, maybe that's because the data which was available to me, I started off with uh, very old adults and then went sort of to midlife adults and then to mm -hmm. college students and then to adolescents and then even to children mm -hmm. uh, and infants. And I think being trained as a lifespan psychologist and my mentors were very involved in the progression of lifespan psychology. So being able to connect across the entire lifespan was important for my, the way that I was thinking about development mm -hmm. uh, then. I, I do think that that sort of crawling down the lifespan from old age down to infancy uh, coincided with my interest in faster and faster timescale data. Uh-huh. And right. the availability of the fast timescale data just happened to be uh, with younger people. Uh -huh. Yeah, because children are changing at, at a much faster rate. Yes, right. So, so many of the designs which people have used are collecting data more and more often. Mm -hmm. How do you think your perspective was different looking at that lifespan approach as opposed to people who are trained in developmental psychology, um, like traditional developmental training? Yeah, so what, one contrast which I see is the, the real focus on uh, the connection between uh, phases of life so that those infants will become toddlers and those toddlers will become uh, children and the children will become adolescents and that there's some continuity across all of those stages mm. that one cannot study one stage in isolation from other stages. Uh-huh. So being cognizant of how it is that uh, developments which occurred earlier might influence developments that occurred um, right. later. And developmentalists often do focus on a particular stage. Y yes. And I would say another one is that uh, 
So it was a talk recently in talking about uh, infancy as a model system for studying a particular process. And um, then I am using the limited capabilities that children have in order to be able to understand a particular cognitive process of interest. Mm -hmm. We've also done that at the end of the lifespan and say the last few years of life are an interesting model system in that language. Uh, in order to study between person differences because we can see them easier at that place in the lifespan compared to other places in the lifespan. Mm -hmm. but, I, but my focus on longitudinal research and longitudinal data sits in contrast to developmental research, cross-sectional mm -hmm. research. Yeah. What I really, really like about your research, even though it's very technical and quantitative, is that you're able to talk about it sort of at this high level of studying change, perhaps in contrast to some other um, more quantitative fields. Yeah, it's fun. Something that we try to do. It, uh, I, I, uh, when I was choosing what to do with my PhD, and I could have gone straight up math, but I somehow wanted to connect to behavior and people. Mm -hmm. So it's been always been important to me to be able to connect the methodological aspects together with the substantive phenomena, mm -hmm. uh, psychological phenomena in particular that I'm interested in. Uh -huh. So you mentioned early in your academic career at Penn State, experience sampling was starting to take off, which is like asking for daily progress reports, whether via surveys or smartphone taps of people's daily experiences. So I guess from there, and then... Was this, what time was this? Like maybe in, in early 2010s or late 2000s? Uh, I would say, so we collect, we started collecting data on May 10th, 20, 2010 after uh -huh. a long ramp into uh, deployment on smartphones. And so uh -huh. I think that put us as one of the first groups who was collecting data via smartphones that we gave mm -hmm. to the participants. Yeah, so all, we, all of this was right around the time that smartphones and social media really started to become a big thing. Yes, right. That was uh -huh. uh, uh, that was what was exciting at, about it at that time, yeah. uh, being able to use those devices in order to be able to get data in situ as people mm -hmm. were going about their daily lives. Yeah, yeah. So look, seeing it that way, it, it not only makes sense that this was a natural progression for your work, but also that you're really one of the pioneers in terms of this so social media analysis thing. Well, that, I, I'm not often characterized as doing social media in particular, but uh -huh. uh, smartphones and right. the, the, the ubiquity and uh, we, at that time, we didn't know that smartphones were going to take off as much as they have. But the uh -huh. idea that you could carry around these devices with you and obtain lots of information from them and provide them with information, that, that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. How much was this kind of like sort of a new discovery in psychology versus like taking an existing application. I'm thinking of ecology, ecological studies, like um, placing, let's say, recording devices near animals. And, and it seems like the methodology is very similar, except it took psychology research a bit longer to catch up. Is that, is that right to frame it that way? Well, I, I'm not sure I would be so, uh, I like the framing, but I, I, not sure I would be so strong in my statement that people have been doing this type of work for a century uh -huh. and say even with the devices that were available in the 1960s, uh, Csikszentmihalyi was already doing what 
worded the 1960s version of experience sampling studies. Mm -hmm. So, so I think we have a long history of even going back further, like, like the idea of, of ecological validity mm -hmm. in psychology was emerging as we should be representing the world as it exists, mm -hmm. as people are exposed to it in real life. Uh -huh. uh, so, I, so I think that these ideas have been around for a long time, and certainly, uh -huh. uh, even like Piaget was studying uh, through observation in situ what it was that children were doing and how it was they were developing. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So the ideas in history were there, but the the novel thing was the technology suddenly came around to make this much easier. Yes. Right. That I totally fully agree. So now longitudinal data is way easier to collect than it used to be, and that pushes me to think that we should be getting more longitudinal data. Um, mm -hmm. We don't need to rely on cross-sectional data anymore. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like at the early stages of this mobile sensing work, the idea was still using the technologies to capture real-world behavior, whether that was through experience sampling surveys or maybe audio recordings or things like that. And then only as the technology became more ubiquitous, did you start looking at the behavior on the devices itself. Is that right? Uh, yes. Once we got access to uh, more internal uh, uh, signals that were being stored on the device, then we said, oh, people are acting as sensors of a variety of different things as well. We can get the GPS tracks. Um, we can get uh, how much light it is that they're being exposed to, how much sound it is they're being exposed to. And then as, as, more and more of life moved onto the screen and you could get, you could be interactive with the media, um, then that in itself became an interesting piece of context that was influencing people's lives and allowing us to observe uh, aspects of behavior. Yeah, I think this would be a good place to provide a brief high level introduction to what the goals of the Human Screenome Project are. And then knowing that we could, we could return to some of the details about how this uh, evolved. Uh -huh. Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, together with colleagues here at Stanford, uh, Byron Reeves and Tom Robinson, we've been working on what we're calling Screenomics and the Human Screenome Project. We install software on participants' devices that collects screenshots of everything that appears on those screens every five seconds. So we get very intensive image time series of the ways in which people are interacting with their devices, what it is that they're reading, what it is that they're seeing, what it is that they're typing into the devices, how it is that they're interacting with the devices. Mm -hmm. So in a very uh, sort of rigorous privacy uh, respecting and uh, equity perspecting protocol uh, that these are being treated as very private data, but mm -hmm. we are able to get intensive time series that allow us to observe and try to model from my perspective, um, the uh, different kinds of behavior that people are engaged with in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So when did you first get the idea of taking screenshots from devices and looking at short timescale change? Uh, well, short timescales change we were, all, we were already interested in. Uh, okay. I was at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science at Stanford on sabbatical in mm -hmm. about 2013. And Byron Reeves and I happened to be uh, serendipitously in offices next to each other. And he's a media psychologist who was very interested in what was being delivered to the device mm -hmm. uh, and appearing on the screen. And I was a psychologist 
interested in analyzing longitudinal data and how to use those signals in order to understand behavior. And so through our conversations, daily conversations that were happening on the deck there overlooking the Stanford campus, we started talking about where these merged, sort of the stimuli that was being uh, presented to people in their daily lives and how individuals were responding to those stimuli in daily mm -hmm. lives. And so that sort of launched the set of studies that Byron students were able to uh, uh, write some software that allowed us to get the first screenshots Mm -hmm. and to try to figure out how to analyze them. Uh -huh. What do you think is different about digital behavior as opposed to real world behavior? And what are, what are some of the main questions that you're hoping to answer that are unique to this type of methodology? Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I think probably from Byron, Byron's influence, one of his books is called The Media Equation. Mm -hmm. And he suggests in that book, along with Cliff Nass, his colleague, that uh, many of the things which are happening in the digital world are, are very similar to what are happening in the real world. So the way in which we uh, respond to uh, the devices and the content on those devices is similar to how we would respond in real life. So, so one, one classic example is, have you ever gotten mad at your computer? Mm -hmm. and, and that means that you can get, if you can get mad at your computer, then it's able to do things which other people in your life could also do that you might right. get mad at. So, so certainly these stimuli are, are provoking actions from us that are similar to real life. So I don't, I'm viewing less and less that the digital world is different from the real world. And mm -hmm. certainly in the last few years, it's been demonstrated to us that the much of life is conducted through the digital world. So the, we're right. having this conversation right now through a digital format, mm -hmm. um, which uh, allows us to be able to engage in the conversation. So, so mm -hmm. I'm not seeing them as being different from each other, but much more uh -huh. complementary. And yeah. that we are all doing both of them together. Mm -hmm. It is amazing how, how connected we are now over long distances. And it's, it's especially looking at the scale of human history, that's such a new phenomenon, like this pandemic happening I mean, we were all quarantined, but at the same time, you have these things like video chats. So it was much more social than, uh, than it could have been. Yes. And thank goodness for that. Also, we, we received a lot of benefits uh, as, as humanity in order to do that. And let's hope that that will continue as we go forward. Mm -hmm. So given that that seems to be a great positive, why do you think there's so much focus on negative influences of social media use or, or of technology in general? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit um, uh, headline grabbing. Uh, new technologies, whenever they are introduced, are often uh, viewed uh, as having potential bad influences. So mm -hmm. similar types of arguments arose when the telephone got introduced, uh, when the television got introduced. And so we're seeing similar arguments now mm -hmm. emerging again as these newer technologies have come up. I think that the interactivity of these new technologies is something which is quite different from what we've seen before as technology emerges. And um, I think that we're, we're trying to understand the benefits and the costs of that type of interactivity. Mm -hmm. So I right. think it's useful to be asking these questions, but I do think that we also need to a, a balance uh, together the negative and the positive aspects uh, mm -hmm. together. 
Yeah. Yeah. Some of the types of interactions, like even this video type chat, it seems like for the most part, all of the, the normal human interaction type things are preserved. Although there are some differences, like there seems to be an ever so slight lag in terms of picking up on subtle facial expressions. I, I uh, heard a theory that that might be why people get Zoom fatigue, because it takes more cognitive effort to keep up with what's happening on the screen at a slight delay compared to in real time, it's sort of more fluid. Yeah, but I, I am involved in conversations currently with groups that are uh, trying to solve this problem. And Mm -hmm. I find it particularly interesting. So this is musicians who are trying to play together in real time over long distances. Mm -hmm. And these lags, these tiny lags matter for how it is that improvisations, for instance, emerge over time. Just like you're saying, conversations emerge in a slightly different way, mm -hmm. potentially because we have these lags and, and they're working on how to solve this technical problem. Mm -hmm. For me, it's interesting from an affective science point of view of what are the emotional uh, cues which are being communicated across uh, between people that gives us a, a better sense of presence mm -hmm. uh, right. with each other. Right. So, that so I, think those be... I think those technical problems are going to get solved. Uh, yeah. So that seems to be one end of the extreme in which our online interactions are just about as close to in-person interactions as we can get. And then on the up other end of the extreme, and you would have everything in between of these two extremes, there would be things like anonymous online chat rooms where you don't see a face, you don't see a name, it's just text, and you know you're interacting with someone. Actually, maybe you don't because there could be bots, but uh, you get the idea. So uh -huh. there's very interesting questions of how do we behave differently on, in those two types of social settings and everywhere in between. Yeah, I really like this characterization because it highlights the role of time Mm -hmm. uh, in the phenomena itself. And I'm fascinated with how is it that time uh, works both analytically within the data which we collect, what is the temporal cadence at which we collect and data and use those data to make inferences. And you're pointing out that even in the phenomena itself, these temporal delays, uh, asynchronous uh, communication being one of them, anonymous communication also adding another layer into the, what I would think of as a temporal uh, element of trying to figure out who somebody is or what they are about. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's is a great place to play with trying to figure out how uh -huh. time influences. Right. So at the same time, there's so much chaos in the system, so to speak, because not only do what different individuals do very vastly in terms of like my online interactions versus yours, but also within individuals where uh, I remember seeing this short little video on your screenomics website, and I'll link it in the description where it's just a, a quick screen, um, little video of various five second screenshots. And it shows how much you're doing on like a typical, what was it? A couple minutes of smartphone usage. Yes. Huh? So like you'll, you'll text your friend and then you'll go check the time and then you'll go look at Instagram for a while and maybe you see a picture that makes you upset. So you close Instagram and then you go text your friend about it, something like that. Um, so it's, there's, there's just so much variability there. Yes, and to me, this is what's so fascinating about it is that we've never had a way to observe uh, the complexity of human behavior and the way we balance multiple goals and inputs simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So from a systems perspective, 
this capturing of screenshots and obtaining all of that information uh, across platform changes, uh, across tax changes, et cetera, that, that, that I think is providing us a new way in which we can try to model uh, human behavior, uh, how we balance multiple goals together, and how in particular we trade off between long-term goals and short-term goals and make mm -hmm. those decisions in real time. Mm -hmm. So this is an oversimplification, but at a high level, you'll have massive amounts of data of screenshots and of patterns of change on devices within individuals. And what's the goal with that? How do you make sense of all of it? I know that's the question you're trying to figure <laughs> out, uh, but, but if we could speak of it as a high level without, without uh, all the, the computational difficulties, um, what can we say there? Yeah, right. This is exactly the problem we're working on. Um, I think that the, the sort of moonshot uh, that we're after is that if we believe that human behavior is at least somewhat predictable mm -hmm. and that we could come up with some modeling, some, mo some mathematical models that allow us to uh, do predictions. Sure, they're stochastic and they're, they're probabilistic predictions, et cetera. But if, that, if we can get there, then we would be able to deploy uh, smart interventions that would be able to help people uh, optimize their goals by delivering mm -hmm. those interventions to the right person at the right time in the right context that would help them uh, achieve the goals that they would like to achieve. Mm -hmm. So I think that our ultimate goal here is to be able to uh, design a closed loop system that would actually help people Mm -hmm. and that our, our attempts at modeling the human behavior side are eventually going to feed into the design of these uh, interventions that, that mm -hmm. accompany people through their lives and, yeah. and help them help them so achieve. When you say behavior. interventions, do you mean like a type of intervention saying, we've noticed that this, when you spend time on social media, um, you, your mental health seems to be worse, like here's an intervention of maybe you should stop that. Or is it an intervention sort of more like a Siri or Alexa type helper where it's noticing that you're doing this particular thing and it makes suggestions in order to make, um, to make your behavior more, more fluid? Yeah, I think there would, but there would be both of these different levels to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, Tom Robinson, a colleague that we're working with, is a specialist in intervention design and deployment. And so we can see all of these different options as potentially emerging mm -hmm. from it. One of them, uh, the Alexa version that you talked about, I would think of as sort of a personal concierge. Uh -huh. who's going to accompany you and help you out as you go forward. Um, you also, the one that you talked about before about sort of delivering information about patterns and mm -hmm. providing people with their own data uh, in order that they can derive, see insights from those data and engage in behavior change from uh -huh. there. Uh -huh. So the latter form, it seems like we have some version of that already. For example, I noticed that if I take out my navigation at a certain time of day, my phone will suggest a location. And it's, it's often the location I'm intending to go, um, probably because it's, it's figured out that I go that place at that time often enough. Now, it seems like that's something that the algorithm has been able to learn just based on the, actually, I, I, don't, I really don't know how it works, but what is unique about screenomics in a, what would be brought on by screenomics research that couldn't be done um, 
with what we already have. Yeah, so so I think the the well, what you're pointing out is that there are already a, a very intensive data being collected on your behavior from these devices, mm-hmm. and that uh, researchers at companies are working, uh, figuring out how it is that they can use that information in order to uh, make your life easier. Mm-hmm. So instead of pressing five buttons, you only have to press one to say yes, I'm on my way home. Uh-huh. Give me the directions to go uh, home based upon your past behavior. Mm-hmm. And this is a great model for what it is that we would like to do as well, is that we mm-hmm. would sort of like to be the, the mapping uh, directive, uh, uh, sort of helping out for much more complicated behaviors than just getting home. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to play three or four goals simultaneously in our lives. I would like to increase my well-being by watching a funny cat video. At the same time, I need to not watch as much TikTok in order that I can actually accomplish the work which I would like to be doing. Mm-hmm. And how do I optimize the trade-off between all of these many, many goals simultaneously? And I think that's we're now getting the data which would allow us to build those much more complicated systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing which we've noticed in the data which we have is that people are really switching from task to task quite quickly. Yeah. So while you're on your way home to play off of this example, you decide you need to stop at the grocery store mm-hmm. in order to be able to pick something up. And, and right. how does that get integrated into the system in, in, in a more, uh, in a way which is helpful to you. Mm-hmm. So would you say that um, the tech companies that are developing these types of algorithms, is it almost like they're doing their own independent sort of screenomics research or do you think the methodologies are different? Uh, as, as far as we, so I think that the, the, at the grand view, the, the approaches are quite similar, obtaining mm-hmm. time series data, and trying to make inferences about human behavior from those time series data. I think that our approach is a little bit different from what it is that we see um, out there in that we are trying to get the cross-platform behavior. So we're not locked into a particular platform where by taking screenshots, we're able to see Mm -hmm. behavior across multiple platforms. And that we have really championed the idea of that the behavioral models which emerge should be person specific. Mm-hmm. And we try to get a model for each person separately before trying to apply models or learn about what's similar or different between the models that describe different people's behavior. Mm-hmm. So really taking this person specific approach seriously right from the front is I think a, a little bit different in the way in which we're thinking. We're not thinking about deployment to uh, a billion users at once we're mm-hmm. thinking about, okay, how do I deploy for one individual at a time so that the uniqueness of that individual comes uh-huh. forth and right. is acknowledged and uh, modeled properly. Right. And you mentioned that the data you have from everyone who's participating, you have their express consent and you store the data in a very secure way. So there are generally with this type of work, some ethical concerns, but it seems like the the academic approach to it is much more um I guess, in mind of those privacy and equity concerns, as opposed to uh, what private companies might be doing. Yes, I think that we, we uh, by the nature of our work, are looking for public good. 
and mm-hmm. trying to uh, figure out ways in which we can collect data and deliver services that are in the service of the public good and the individual good. Um, we are not incentivized by trying to make uh, money. I don't have a profit margin, which I have to try to make. And so I'm able as a researcher, as a university-based researcher to, to ask different kinds of questions Mm-hmm. Then uh, an industry-based researcher might have some other pressures which they have to mm-hmm. uh, work under. So some of the examples we talked about already have to do, it seems like, more with convenience than public good. So, um, I mean, for one thing, we could we could ask to what extent is convenience a public good and to what extent is that worth the privacy trade-off that there may be? Um, so why, why don't we start there if you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the examples which emerge that make it easy, easy to explain are about uh, c- convenience, but I think we're all trying to increase people's well-being mm-hmm. and health as a, as a domain of interest generally. So, uh, for instance, we could think of another application as being, say we have task switching rate as Uh one of the features which we can extract from the screenome. And if we start to notice that the task switching rate is changing, this Mm -hmm. might serve as an early marker of some kind of cognitive decline or an illness. Mm -hmm. And that would then flag a person for uh, uh, suggesting that they get some extra screening in order to find out if that's a a temporary issue or Uh something which uh, might need some larger uh, intervention in it. So uh-huh. I think there's a diagnostic uh, component here also mm-hmm. in trying to help people optimize their health. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So I, I guess there you could look at not only, let's say, task switching or rate of usage, but potentially, well, are you analyzing content? Because you could you could make a case like, and I'm sure some social media research might have already done this. Like if you're looking up specific keywords, maybe you're more likely to be at risk for depression or suicidal ideation or something like that. Yes. And, and so, so certainly one of the things which we can do with this platform, which is not available in, in say, uh, app logging uh, software, which is often coming from smartphones right now, is that we do have access to the content. Mm-hmm. And also not just the textual content, but also the pictorial content and the icon content. So, so that means that we have a more ro- we can potentially make a more robust picture about how people are moving through a very high dimensional multimedia world, and that there's probably a lot more signal in that world that we would be able to extract. Uh, my dream is that we would be able to use these uh, these time series in order to be able to get spatial temporal tracks in some very high dimensional media space and then be able to help people find the locations in that space, which are optimal for them and their well-being. Uh-huh. So in terms of these signals of different changes, how would you identify whether something is positive or negative? So here's a rather extreme example. Imagine that um, your phone data shows that you've wandered into the desert and then suddenly there's no activity for a week. Should we presume that you've just gone missing and we need to send out an emergency signal, or maybe you just went on some sort of desert retreat where you decided to put away all technology for a week and this is a purposeful good that you have no signal or no. So that's an extreme example, but but I think you get the idea. Yeah, this is a great example. And I think this is where the, the difficulties lie in the predictive models is that 
um, is does when does one how much false positives does one uh, tolerate mm-hmm. in the deployment of an intervention? And in certain domains, we are much more tolerant of false positives than in other domains. Mm-hmm. So to take suicidality as an example is that we if that is going off into the desert, then we would want to err on the side of saving lives uh, rather than bothering somebody with an extra few texts that might not uh, quite fit. So I think that depending upon the domain, uh, we can figure out, uh, and that may differ from person to person, how mm-hmm. tolerant they are of these extra probes that are going in. But I think you've got, you've got exactly what the problem is. Uh-huh. And I don't have a solution for that now, except that when we get to doing particular domain specific deployments, that mm-hmm. we would we would need to figure out how often it is that we mm-hmm. would do interventions. So it seems like one good way to frame it would be that there would be sort of maybe various tiers to opt into or opt out of in terms of how much which which types of data you want to give access to and what types of benefits might come from allowing that type of data to be seen or something like that. Yes, and and here. Uh, in, in the way in which the ethical frameworks which we're working from, these would be user-driven in most cases mm-hmm. that individuals would have the opportunity to choose what it is that they would like to, uh, the types of interventions that they would like mm-hmm. to look at and see in the same way that's happening in the genomics uh, world. Uh, people receiving their genomics data or providing their genomics data have options and how deep they would like those data to be examined and mm-hmm. what information they receive in return. Uh-huh. So here might be a far future implication of this work. Maybe it's just because I like the rhyme, but the screenome genome interactions. So you'd be looking at potentially uh, biologically driven individual differences as they relate to differences um, in online behavior. Y- yes, so, so certainly, we can take a between person differences approach and understand how the dynamics of media use uh, and, and engagement are differing across those between person differences. Mm-hmm. I would, I would highlight the contrast between these two different approaches being that the thought that the genome is fixed and static and is not mm-hmm. changing over time. Yes. On the epigenetic side, we are understanding that there are, differential activation of genes at different times, but the screenome by its very nature is time series and very dynamic. And Mm -hmm. that allows us to observe a different kind of behavior and observe a different kind of uh, within person changes or become prioritized rather than the between person differences. Mm -hmm. I think we should close talking about realistic timeline that you expect this might research might develop. So maybe we could talk next one year, five years, 10 years, where you might see screenomics research going. Yeah, I think it all it depends upon how much, how many people we can get interested and involved in the, in the research. Um, I guess our one year goals are, we've got a lot of data right now and trying to figure out how to extract out uh, important features. Uh, psychologically informative features from those um, data. I think mm-hmm. we're already sort of halfway there, but there's some work that needs to be done on that side. And uh, my hope is that in the next, uh, probably about a year from now, we would be able to uh, start deploying some interventions in order to test out the paradigm mm-hmm. 
-hmm. of using screenomics data in order to drive interventions and test their effectiveness of those interventions. So I think that that's all sort of happening over the, over the course of the next uh, few years. If mm -hmm. I look way further down the pipeline, um, I would say that probably the technology is gonna change uh, mm -hmm. at some point and a new iteration of what screenomics is will need to emerge um, mm -hmm. as the next generation of devices uh, also emerge. Right. It, seem, it seems in principle very closely related to how, how close we, like we kind of regard the smartphones to be an extension of ourselves in a way, because imagining the same types of um, screenshots of your laptop behavior, for example, it seems like it's changing not as rapidly. And also that it's, it's like you'll go on for maybe during working hours or to watch some YouTube videos or something, but it seems much less likely that you're going to be, that it, it'll be constantly on you in the way that a smartphone is. Yeah, this is the beauty of these, of these, the ubiquity of these devices is that uh -huh. from a research standpoint where we're trying to understand human behavior, we now have a window into human behavior that we've never had before. A fine granularity of those moment-to-moment uh, -moment behaviors Mm -hmm. And when, as we figure out how to uh, pull signal out of the noise of the noisiness of that data stream, mm -hmm. it's a new opportunity. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fun. Do you have any shocking statistics to share? Cause I, I imagine that we must check our phones, like, I don't know, every 90 seconds or something on average. Uh, uh, multiple hundred times a, a day often is the, is the pickups that are occurring. Uh -huh. uh, uh, the one that's most that's interesting for us is the average time that a person switches from one task to another on laptops is about uh, 19 seconds and on smartphones is about uh, 10 or 11 seconds in our data. Mm -hmm. And that suggests that uh, humans are able to engage with multiple tasks simultaneously. Yes, there's a long tail. We can watch a YouTube video that lasts four and a half minutes, but that's probably sort of at the long end of the, before these interruptions happen. Uh -huh. And I don't think that this is a particularly new phenomenon. If I used to read the newspaper, um, the actual paper version of that, I would read <laughs> and then I would have some thoughts about something else. And then I right. would go back to reading again. Uh -huh. But now we have a chance to be able to actually observe that happening in real time uh -huh. because we can actually see the switch from one from the newspaper article to the Instagram post and back to the newspaper uh -huh. article. So I think we, we're able to obtain another layer of insights into how it is that humans are balancing these, uh, this goal progression. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, do you think the worries about kids' attention spans getting shorter, say, do you think that's real and motivated by these technologies? Or do you think it's more like the technologies allow us to observe short-term changes that we wouldn't have noticed with the newspaper, for example? Uh, I think it's probably a little bit of a combination of both mm -hmm. in that the devices uh, facilitate a set of behaviors that uh, were more difficult to engage in uh, before. Uh, but we've looked at the distribution of the switches in behavior and these in, in other types of technologies have been log normally distributed 
mm-hmm. uh, meaning that there's a lot of short switches and then some longer uh, segments, um, some short seg- a bunch of short segments and some longer segments, but it's mostly concentrated on the short segment side. And we are seeing that same log normal distribution manifesting in the segments on the phones, which to me suggests that we've simply moved the entire distribution to the left and the device is allowing our brains to function in the way in which they were designed to function. Uh, simply at a little bit faster time scale than was available before, um, uh, especially on the measurement side, as you know. So, so I am, am not seeing that we're seeing fundamental shifts in how brains are um, interacting with the devices other than that they let the brain do what it is that the brain was designed to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the technology is going to change over time, but I think my favorite part about screenomics research is that maybe one, one of these days, I, I'm forgetting the example, but um, maybe, maybe uh, like, you know, the icon on your computer um, for saving a file and it's like a floppy disk and those basically don't exist anymore. I wonder if one day the name screenomics might be like, we, screens won't be much of a thing anymore if, if something like Neuralink takes off or the technology might be implanted in your brain or in your retina or even on your glasses. So it seems like the, but it seems like the methods for collecting these data and engaging in those interventions would probably remain. I mean, I'm sure they would change, but it seems like you'd still have the opportunity to do that at an even faster pace, even if the technology becomes uh, more closely tied to us than the smartphone is. Yeah, I think, um, you're, yes, I think that the general approach to collecting the, the fine, temporally fine granular um, data mm-hmm. is the direction in which we are moving. And so it's nice to be sort of trying to push that um, forward. Our, our brains have a huge visual cortex in them. So mm-hmm. I think at least we'll probably have screens for a while before we do that. And I like the idea of it, us going to retinal implants uh-huh. Um, but I do think that because we've evolved to ab- absorb a lot of information through that particular pathway, mm-hmm. that uh, screens screens have so longer life than than some other modes of technology, probably. Then it's a good name, then screen home. <laughs> yeah, Neil, I'm thank you That's so much it. for your time. I'm very excited to see uh, where this field goes as your research progresses. Thank you, Adam. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.